This is Women Authors of Achievement podcast, episode five with guest Georgie Smallwood. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Daria Suvorova, and welcome to the show. Georgie's career has been one of a constant hypergrowth. From scaling Australia's biggest marketplace at Rio Group, transforming teams and business models in Hong Kong, then going with a successful IPO with Scout24 in Germany and leading the N26 product for over two years. Today, Georgie is Chief Product Officer at Tier, Europe's leading provider of micromobility with a mission to change mobility for good. In this episode, you will learn how Georgie transforms organizations from early stage into scalable global businesses and why she's passionate about working in particular with companies of Series C stage. You will find out what every product manager should have in their toolbox as Georgie breaks down the formula behind three types of product managers. Put on your solution-seeking product manager hat, and off we go on this learning journey with Georgie Smallwood. Georgie, welcome. So great to have you here today. I was very much looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. It's good to be here, Daria. And thanks for inviting me. It's nice to See someone in person. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a rarity today, but delighted to see you as well. I listened to a few interviews that you gave in the last couple of years, and it gave me an impression that you're a person who is passionate about storytelling with the work you do. At first, you wanted to be a journalist, which is the essence of storytelling. And now you tell stories by building products that customers absolutely love. Did I make the right impression of you? Yes. You did. So uh, as a journalist, I think the, <laughs> the short-lived career that it was, uh, what I was good at is, is, is pulling that story together. And I like uh, inspiring people or making people happy or taking people to a different place. And so with product, it's the same thing. And you are really solving a problem or solving a solution. And if you do it well, you do it seamlessly. And that's the same as a good story. And when did you realize that you are a product person? I think it was a gradual thing. I think I became a product person before I realized what that really meant for me. And when I moved into leadership roles, I think is when I realized how truly I was a product person and how I was passionate about building something that meant something to other people. And I, to be honest, I didn't really recognize it until I was explaining it to other people and I could hear it in my story uh, what that connection was. How does one recognize if they should take on a career in product, that this is really something for them? So I think it's changing. So firstly, when I started out, uh, there was no function called product. So I started as a media coordinator in a fast-paced, hyper-growth tech organization after I was a journalist anyway. And I just did the things that needed to be done to get us to the next point. And in essence, you were kind of writing the story of the organization, right? You wanted to get to this point and we wanted to grow the company or grow the users. And because of that, you needed to add different types of users. They needed a different story. And so depending on whether I was working with in-company technology like CRM and uh, ad servers or whether I was managing campaigns for clients or whether I was filling in for a salesperson, they all kind of just colored in the picture a bit more. And so when I got to a point in my career where I was like, okay, I need to 
decide what I want to do because I, I have this conversation a lot with people that I mentor is, is that at one point I was, I had so many fingers in so many different pies. Uh, and we often call this a generalist. And I really liked that. I liked knowing all the different pieces that plug together. And I liked being able to use different pieces of information to build the right solution. But I needed to focus. And this is a point that a lot of people get to in their careers, especially in if you're in the startup world, because if you're in a successful startup, at some point you start to become a scale up. And that's when you get a bit more money and you want to scale the organization. So you need experts in those functions. And so the people that have been working their backside off for the last year and a half, two years, four years, with their finger in a million different pies, all of a sudden you need everyone to focus a little bit more because you need someone to focus 100% on CRM or 100% on building the product. And so things change. And so I got to that point as well. And that's when I decided, took some reflection and a couple of, you know, strong mentor coaching sessions and realized that actually what I liked to do was was solve problems. And that was when I decided that I would focus on being an expert in product. In one of your panel discussions, actually the one last year, you said that for a product person, the aim is to solve anxiety of the customers and fix emotional and fundamental problems they might face. Who is that ultimate product person and what should they have in their toolbox to succeed in solving those problems? Yeah, so I do I do believe that software has for software to be as successful as it can be, uh, it needs to solve an emotional problem, right? So f functional solutions work, but they they don't become unicorns or they don't scale to that point. So as a product person, firstly, you just have to be interested in finding solutions and you need to be curious to find solutions that haven't been found before. I think if you are a consumer product manager, you have to be interested in the psychology of the consumer and what it is that makes people tick and what it is. It's not just about asking them a question and getting them to answer it back, right? If you want to be building consumer solutions that change the way that people do things in the future, you need to know something about them that they don't know about themselves. And, and banking was a really good example of this because in banking, if you ask a group, you can ask 5,000 people what they want from their bank and they're going to say something along the lines of better interest rates. And so if you want to change the way that people bank for the future, that's not going to be the solution. And you have to understand more about people's emotional relationship with money and how, what are the underlying problems there that you can solve. And it might not be a feature, but it might be how you build multiple features um, that comes together. And so this is the same with, with any pioneer product, right? Anything that's trying to change something or trying to change a behavior of a consumer, the psychology of, of people and consumer segmentation needs to really drive how you think of solutions. So we have solving problems, understanding consumer psychology, anything else in their toolbox? Well, I mean, the more tools, the better, <laughs> as far as I can, as far as I'm concerned. I, I think that this is where experience comes into it. And this is sometimes not what everyone wants to hear. But the longer that you are in career or maybe a, 
a subject, the more challenges you're going to come up against. And they're going to be different every time. And it doesn't matter if you stay in the same phase of a company or you go into different companies or what it is, but the more experiences you can add, the more tools you're going to to put in your back pocket. And so the more you have, then the more flexible that you can be with your solutions. And you can say, okay, I'm going to take this bit from when I worked in advertising and I'm going to take this bit and we have a problem with the onboarding funnel. So actually I worked in e-commerce for X amount of time. I'm going to take something from there. And so your solutions become more kind of three-dimensional. So experience is, is important. And it, I, by experience, I do not mean years, right? Because you can be 60 years old and not have the experience of someone who's 30. But expose yourself to different experiences, whether that's different companies and different jobs or whether that's talking to people, going to talks, asking questions, reading books, playing with things on the side, like the more experience that you can get, the better. And if we break down the good and the bad, so the the good product manager and the bad product manager, how do they differentiate? <laughs> I, I used to say, I haven't said it for a long time, actually, that there's three types of product managers and two are bad. <laughs> They're not bad, by the way. They're just not great. And the first one is data-driven to all extents, right? And and it's you, everything needs to be validated and you make sure that you have backups for all of your statements and all of your solutions. The problem is in, in the industries that we work in and the speed that companies grow these days, by the time you build something, you're way too late and uh, you'll be, it just won't matter anymore. The second type is a type that doesn't do any of that, right? And really thrives in a startup world and really builds product based on gut. Um, and you find that a lot of this comes in founders as well. And this makes them really successful early on because they have a great gut feel, they know the market, and they just build fast, which is how all good companies were made. The challenge is that that doesn't scale because the more t the more consumers that you have, the more diverse your consumer set is. And so while you were probably building for people just like you once upon a time and that was fine, uh, you now need to build for multiple people and you do need to do research and you do need data to build for a diverse set of consumers. So the best type of product manager has A, that experience that we were talking about to have a good gut feel, is interested in consumer psychology so they can bring that experience to the product, but also validates those gut feels to a point where you can move fast enough to beat other people, right? And this is where product management is quite artistic in that you, no one's going to tell, there's no line that you cross and then all of a sudden that's when you should go. You need to learn what it feels like And you need to know the market that you're in and the product and the teams that you're dealing with so that you know how gutsy you can be versus how validated you need that concept to be. So let's say I think I have my product, I have my team, I know my customer, hopefully, and uh, we have a market, target market where we want to launch. How does a good product manager ensures a successful product launch? So 
you ensure success by getting something out there as fast as possible, right? So this is the the thing that often people miss, right? It's not just launch something and then leave it. And it's not let's validate and research and validate. It's ship something, use that iterative cycle to that. We talk a lot about iterative cycles in, in product. And often it comes across as though you don't have a plan, but you do have a plan. What you have is some strong hypotheses that you're going to test along the way. Um, and that plan can change depending on what you learn from those different things. So the very first thing you need to do is put something out there because until you do that, it's just pieces of words on a, pa- on a piece of paper. Um, so get something out there, get it in the hands of people, even if it's to the point where you've drawn, you've had an idea in the morning, you've talked to the team, you draw it up on some A4 pieces of paper and you go down to your local coffee shop and you say, hey, does this make sense to you, to some random person who you think would be part of your target market? That's validation as well. So, so get scrappy and move as fast as possible. That's a great point. I would like to switch our conversation to the company you joined recently. It's Tier, and it's a Berlin-based uh, micromobility company. And as far as I believe, you joined not so long ago. And could you tell me the reason why you decided to work for them and also what, uh, what is Tier? So Tia is, is, like you said, a micromobility company. And actually they contacted me uh, at the beginning of the last year and asked me to ad- help them with the product side. So I was an advisor to them on the product side of the organization. Matthias Lung is the CTO and he was uh, doing the looking after the product and the technology side of the business. So I was working with him to kind of bring out the product a bit more. And then in the middle of last year, they asked me if I would move into the CPO role. So what happened was when I came, became an advisor, I looked into the product and the company and it had all of the things that I look for when looking for a great product, right? It had product market fit. It was scaling fast. It was changing the way that people do things in the future. And that was their desire. And it had a much bigger goal than the product that they had at the time. And so when I think about Tia, I've never thought about it as a scooter company, which is interesting because lots of people ask me why I would go from a bank to a scooter company. Whereas actually I see both N26 and Tia Mobility as products that are trying to shape what the future is going to look like. And so the reason I joined Tia was because I am very passionate about what cities are going to look like in the future. And I think that the transport element of that is one bit that we haven't really cracked yet. Like I always think back to when, you know, plastic bags at supermarkets changed. In Australia, it happened when regulation stepped in and all of a sudden everyone had to pay for the plastic bag at the counter and there was a huge amount of uproar about it. But it did change consumer behaviour because people didn't want to pay 15 cents for a plastic bag. So they started bringing their own bags Uh, and it took about three months and it was just in every paper, every news report. But after that, all of a sudden it was a bit like, why did we ever have plastic bags before? And I think that Tia has with such a strong purpose and lots of companies seem to be purpose-driven and aren't. (laughs) And when I got to Tia, one of the things that was so startling to me was every single person that I met or spoke to spoke about unprompted 
why they joined the company. And lots of people turned jobs down at some incredible organizations because they believed in changing mobility and transport for the better. And and that's really what TIA is about. And when I looked at the, so that the purpose really drove me. The executive team is phenomenal. So you have two founders who've exited successfully before. The CFO, Alex, has an amazing track record with Receipt Bank, Microsoft. Roger, he's amazing, went through HelloFresh all through to IPO. So I, I felt like I could learn a lot from them as well. And I, I feel like people think that once you become a C-something, like that's the be-all and end-all. And maybe I thought that too. Uh, and then all of a sudden I got here and felt completely unprepared for that to be <laughs> the be-all and end-all. And I do want to learn and I want to grow. So I want to surround myself with people that I can do that with. And what is your opinion? How is the state of micromobility business right now? And was it affected by the pandemic in a good or bad way? It's a journey. So a couple of, about a year ago, there was you know, 14 or 15 huge micromobility companies in Europe, and it is consolidating down to three or four. Um, but now what we're seeing is four, three or four quite similar products in the market. And this happens in in every product market, you see a proliferation of services and then you see a consolidation of services. And that can happen in companies. It can also happen in, in different types of products and in consumers. And at the moment, what we see is that we have a couple of vehicles out there which provide certain journeys to people, right? And scooters are probably the least appealing of those vehicles, right? Because it's quite a young profile. You can't carry a lot with them. But what we need to do is expand that vehicle space so that more journeys within an urban area can be taken with sustainable mobility. Did you know that 60% of trips under five kilometers in a city are taken by cars still? And the amount of pollution that that creates unnecessarily is horrific. And so really, if we can replace that 60% of trips with something that is green and helps the environment, like we take a huge step forward in the pollution that our cities create just on a daily basis. And I truly believe it's unnecessary to do that. And we need to make sure that these types of transport are accessible for everyone. So accessible for the different journeys that they want to take, whether it's to the supermarket or the doctor or to work and also accessible from a price point. And what are some of the things, products that you're currently working at here and perhaps we can expect this year? So one of the things about Tier that I love is that instead of looking at things as, as product features, we look at things in the outcomes that they produce. So our goal is to take up a larger percentage of carbon emitting journeys. So everything that we build from the vehicles that we build through to the software solutions, through to the pricing models, is all measured against things that take pollution away from the city. And so we have to work with two different consumers for that to happen, one being the rider of the vehicle and making sure that those needs are met And that includes availability of the vehicle, uh, but it also includes the, the right vehicle at the right time. So we're looking at those things as well. But the other consumer that's really important is the city, right? And because it's not just about the people that ride the vehicles or drive the vehicles, 
It's also about the citizens in the city. And it's important not to kind of please one at the expense of the other. So we see our consumer as a citizen of Berlin or a citizen of Paris. And someone who doesn't ride with Tia should also still like and appreciate the product. And that's a really strong balance because it, it's different on how you do things. So we will not put a million scooters on every corner because actually that takes up pavement space. And if the utilization rate of those vehicles isn't very high, then all you're doing is putting clutter on the streets of a city. And that we know that that, uh, that feedback is not great from people who aren't using the vehicles. And so we want to strike a balance with being available to the people that want to ride them, but also we want to enhance the city and, and enhance the pollution levels, yes, but also enhance the livability of that city. So the types of things that we build are algorithms that make sure that the scooters or the vehicles are in places where they will be used. We want to make sure that the pricing model makes it available to everyone, but we want to do that not at the expense of us being a successful organization. So we need to be really clever about our price point and giving people different options for different price points. So maybe one of the things that we're doing this year is we're rolling out our power banks and we call this the tier energy network. So we can use our tier energy network to electrify cities, which is fantastic because we know that electricity is not readily available. But also we have a beta program at the moment, which is user swapping. So if, and that's why you see the, the batteries on the outside in inverted commas of tiers, because you can actually swap the battery yourself. And so as a user, what we're testing at the moment is if you swap the battery and we give you a free unlock and 10 free minutes, like, is that something that you could, you would make the product more accessible to people? Not only would it make it free for that person to ride, it would decrease our operational costs and actually it would make the whole thing work a lot easily. So we look at different ways of making products more accessible and available. So if I swap the battery, where does the other one? So we have power post? boxes. And they'll be in different cities around Europe. Um, so I think we're rolling out about four or 5,000 over this year. And how can one locate that, that power box? They'll be in the map as well. Okay. So what you'll do is you'll just unlock the, the battery from the scooter. You'll pull it straight out. It's a bit like a, a milk carton, I guess. A bit heavier. <laughs> and you take it out and you pop it into the power bank, which is about a foot and a half by a foot and a half. It probably sits in the spatey. It's plugged in there. It also drives uh, traffic to local businesses, which is fantastic. You swap it out, you put the new one into the scooter and you have a fully charged scooter. Really cool. Looking forward to that uh, feature and trying it out. And Georgie, how do you, as a CPO, how do you also participate in the company's organizational and governance level? So I talk to a lot of product people about strategy. And lots of, play, lots of companies that you will start in will often have a strategy that's either not well known or not be using, or potentially they don't have a strategy and they have very clear mission and vision. Uh, and then they have uh, objectives or KPIs or some metric that you need. Now, because I have ended up kind of specializing in this scale up environment, one of the things that is unique to this environment is that things are moving crazy fast. And there's always a lot of ambiguity and vagueness about what everyone has to do. And because you're dealing with a company that has done very, very well 
but now is going to grow massively, you're also adding new people to that mix. And so the most important thing that you can do as a scale up is make sure that how you are going to win is clear to everyone in your organization. Now, that doesn't sound like a product thing, but often it is. And so this will a lot of the time fall to the product leader, whether it's a CPO or a VP or even a head of product in an earlier stage company. And so what I like to do first is take a status check of what's going on in the organization and if everyone understands the strategy the same way from the ops people through to customer support through to marketing and product. And if it isn't a clear understanding there, then that's the first thing I do. So often I find my job is more comms than anything else Uh, making sure that everyone understands exactly where we're going. Because if you're hiring talented, driven, ambitious people and you don't tell them the direction that you're going, then they will take you in a direction because you that's what you hired them for, to create a plan and to deliver against it. So that's what they will do. But what you'll get is that pulling against each other. It's like a spider, right? Everyone will go in a slightly different direction and they might counter each other out so it's not effective. And that's when... You'll be in an organization where you feel like everyone is working really, really hard, but it doesn't seem to be doing anything. And as an executive, whether you're the product executive or another type, that's the most important thing that you can do, right? And this was the biggest thing I learned going from a product manager as an individual contributor, even as a director, to the CPO, was that the product that I was building changed. And so as a director, the product is, you know, either the the monetization strategy or the new feature that you're building. And as the CPO, your product is the product organization. And for the product organization to be successful, they need to have clarity and they need to know where we're going so that they can use their talent effectively. But also the other parts of the company need to understand the same thing. Otherwise, they counter out the work. You could build the most insane, amazing, cutting edge product. And if you don't market it correctly or you don't or when someone calls to ask about it, you don't talk about it properly in customer support, then that can counter the work of the product team out. So it's not just about the product organization. The C part of any C-level role is all the same. And it's about making sure that the whole company is going in the one direction. And since we're speaking of scalability in teams, and you are very seasoned product professional, um, now a CPO at Tier earlier, chief product officer at N26, head of product at Scout24, and the list can go on. It's, it's endless. I'm curious to ask you, how does a strong and resilient teams look like at a successful company? Because this is also the core of any successful company is a great team. And also, how do those teams differ at different stages of the company? So let's split it into two parts. So different stages is important to recognize because what you need to be successful at different stages changes. So like I said early on in an early stage startup, Series A or pre-Series A, it's about getting something together and pushing it out so that you can start to validate your hypothesis. Now, A lot of the time you need a certain profile there who is super creative, colors outside the lines. Like you have to think, right, if I'm pitching to investors, if that's the way that I want to go, then I need to stand out. I need to be doing something different. What am I going to do? So you need really creative, really driven, excited, 
And then as you grow into a, a series B, you want to hire people who are still very driven and organized, but not quite so color outside the lines because you kind of know what you need to do, right? So you've already decided and you work really closely together. So pre-series B, it's like very family-like and you need to work well together as an organization. And sometimes that can lead to a lack of diversity, hopefully not all the time, but that isn't quite natural, right? So you hire your friends or you hire people that you know from your network But as you grow into series C, and I use the series not because I think that you should go for VC money or for funding, but just because it is highly correlated to the stage of growth the company is in. And so at that scale-up stage is when you start to hire experts in different functions. So the thing there that you need to do is make sure that A, those experts that you hire have a high level of respect for how you got the company to this point, because that's really, really important. You can't have a disrespect for what got the company to here just because we need something different to get it to the next phase. Uh, You also need people who are highly empathetic and can work and grow other people in the organization as well, because you don't want to just draw a line in the sand and say, right, well, everyone, like we don't need that type of person anymore. We need this time because that a, that's not true. You need both. And B, the best thing that you can do is grow your talent uh, through those phases because then you keep strong IP, you keep a strong identity of the organization and the success of what got you from a startup to a a scale-up, you need to keep that. You need to keep that identity. Otherwise, you lose it and you just become another business, which not many people want to work for these days. And when it's around Series C, how do you still ensure that – this is a high-performing team and it's not slowing down at that stage. Yes. So what's really interesting is that as you go from a more homogenous team to a more diverse team, and you have to because you need that creativity and you need those viewpoints to make sure that you build the right products and you build the right solutions, is that you need to create an environment where diversity can exist in a respectful and harmonious way, which is one of the hardest things that you can do, which is why when people ask me about uh, diverse teams and hiring, there are lots of things that you can do to hire a diverse team and you can hire a diverse team quite easily. What you can't do easily is turn a diverse team into a high-performing team and that is about the inclusive environment that you create. So not only do you need to hire diversity but you need to hire high empathy people. You need to hire people who respect what you're trying to do. And as a leader, you need to set the environment and the expectations of that team and make it clear to the people coming in that these are what the expectations are. And that can be the common denominator, right? It doesn't have to be that we all went to the same school or we all speak the same language or we all even live in the same place. You need to find a commonality in diversity so that people can be on the same page. And that's when teams become high-performing is that they can get behind something that they all agree on. And then it's up to you as a leader to create an environment where people feel safe to disagree and to say their opinion because what's the point in hiring a diverse team if you don't then listen to them? And uh, yourself, you worked in Australia. That's where you originally come from. (laughs) You worked in Hong Kong and also in Germany. 
Uh, where do you find yourself most excited in terms of team environment, but also in terms of the business stage of a company? Is it Series A uh, stage or is it more Series B or potentially Series C? So I do like the Series C phase. And again, I didn't intentionally do it that way. I, I figured it out as I landed in the environments. And I think that's because I enjoy the human element of build. I really love building teams. And so it's probably why remote working is quite hard for me. I'm learning. I'm trying to learn. <laughs> But that Series C stage when you've got amazing talent that got the company to where it is and you want to make sure that they feel comfortable and confident that they have an important role to play in the next phase of the company at the same time as you're trying to get the right people into the organization to lift it to that next level because companies and organizations, the demands on, on us these days are so high and no human can keep up with the amount of growth that you need to do to, to keep it that level. So you need to understand that and as a leader, make sure that people know that they can grow with an organization. And so you need to have people of lots of different skills and, and levels in a team to balance it out so that you know that you can build or grow success at the pace that the organization requires while at the same time making sure that people feel supported. And this is probably the hardest thing in my job because people are human and they have their desires and their expectations and their ambitions. Uh, and these stages of companies often then trigger those things and people want to know like what their future is going to look like, especially working with younger people in the organization. They're like, okay, there's so much change. Like, and I haven't got the experience yet. I'm really worried that I'm not an expert enough. I'm like, okay, so let's let's work on that then. And what what kind of thing do you want to look at? And and you can support people through that phase, which I find really validating, right? And and I want to, especially young women. So I want to make sure that as as we get these experiences in companies, that that means that in four years, eight years, there are more women in leadership positions who made it through these phases of their careers and they didn't feel that they didn't have anyone to talk to or there was no path for them because there is, it's just so overwhelming. And I know because I was there that sometimes it feels easier just to say, oh, maybe I'll just stay here, but you shouldn't, you should keep going. <laughs> but this was from the operational and governance point of view. And what about from the product point of view? Do you still find it most interesting when it's more matured product on Series C stage? Yes. So that was the one thing I learned about myself throughout my career is as most product managers have ambitions about startups, right? Because we like to build things. And I did too. And, and I have a lot of friends in product and we have a dinner party and we all talk about these ambitions about how we're all going to start our own company one day. Th that's the impression <laughs> I also had because you like you spoke about the customer psychology, getting to know <laughs> the people, speaking to them. I was like, yeah, Georgie is the person who really, you know, starts it from scratch. She really likes that. But yep. <laughs> no, so I did try. Uh, so at one point in my career, I took a role as the CPO of an incubator. And I don't like that phase, which I, which I found really fascinating about myself. So I like taking something that has product market fit 
and has proven that there's a problem that can be solved for it. And then I like exploding it. So I, I, I like taking something that potentially is a, a non-diverse product and, you know, works for a certain type of person or an early adopter set. And then I like scaling that across different people, different countries, different socioeconomic groups, um, and really making it more dynamic. Yeah, that's the bit that I like. And speaking of yours as a leader, I really wanted to hear more of those challenges that you had to face on those different series, but also as working in multinational companies and corporations, startups. What were the challenges you had to face and when was something went not exactly as you expected? Uh, that happens a lot. <laughs> so this is, I think, why this is a big part about why I am where I am right now is that having worked in Australia and Hong Kong and Germany, obviously that sounds great <laughs> now, but doing it was hard. So going from Australia and going to Hong Kong, so I, as a 20-something-year-old who had landed in a hyper-growth organization in Australia, which was a great opportunity with a healthy dose of luck associated with it for the environment that I landed in with the peers and the manager that I had, I was supported to thrive, right? And, and I loved that. And we built an amazing team. And I'm still very close friends with people that were in that team. And so over four years, I built a team of about 35 across Australia and we were smashing it, right? This company was phenomenal. It went, it, at one point, it was the biggest tech company in Australia besides Atlassian. So going to Hong Kong, I went with a very high level of confidence from this one type of experience. And this is what I mean by you need to get lots of experiences because I got to Hong Kong and it was the same company, but different environment, different product. So uh, in Australia, it was a fully digital product and we were working with digital advertisers. In Hong Kong, we were dealing with a print magazine that we needed to convert to online and we needed to convert all the revenue. Then when we got there, we realized that even though Hong Kong seems like it's incredibly technology savvy and I was super excited to learn lots about it, it is very intelligent from technology, but the commercialization of technology wasn't really there at the time. So robots, great. Advertising on a website, not so much. They were still like you would still walk around the corner and there would be like people selling magazines which just didn't happen in Australia anymore. And you would walk past a real estate agent and people would be sticky taping the pieces of paper from the printout on the wall to say, you know, this is the, the house that you should go and see. And so the environment was completely different. And then working with the team in Hong Kong was also completely different. So I went in, guns blazing, 28 years old, like high on confidence, and it didn't work at all. And I thought that I could do the same thing and get the same result. And I, you can't. It's a different culture. You need to understand the people in the team and what drives them and, and what's important to them and who are the change makers and who are the people that you need on side were completely different profiles than the ones in Australia. And so after about six months realizing that I was going about this in completely the wrong way, I spent more time with the team, learning about them, and I worked out that, you know, the 
in Australia, the the high performers or the change makers are, are mostly the you know the ones that rally everyone to go to the pub. We're not all alcoholics, but <laughs> like we do like sitting at the pub. And uh, in Hong Kong, it was the ones that knew everyone's parents' names. And, you know, you were invited to their children's first birthday and it was very family-centric and it was also no one wanted to stand out. And I learned this twigged for me in a different way. I was on the bus and this woman got on and she had a pram and she tripped and uh, the, the pram wobbled and she fell over and no one did anything. And it wasn't because they didn't want to help. It's because culturally you don't stand out. And this is really important to know about the different environments that you work in. So that wasn't non-helpful. It was just culturally that was what you did. And so from a high-performing team perspective, you have to understand those elements of the team psychology. And so Hong Kong made a huge impression on me. I think you probably couldn't go anywhere culturally different more than Hong Kong from Australia. But then I went to Germany <laughs> and I realized I picked three of the more most culturally different places in the world. And I think that all of those things coming together meant that my ears are prigged straight away to those elements of people. So when you're working in companies like N26 and like Tier, which are highly international, it's not just about being international, it's about understanding what that means and the backgrounds of the people there. Now, Obviously, there's a common denominator because they people that are attracted to high growth, high ambitious, but there are elements of culture that are ingrained in people and you need to understand that and, and create an environment that respects the differences that are there so that you can create a commonality. So you do not regret those opportunities of going to Hong Kong and now being here in Germany? Never. I think the The best thing that I ever did in my life was decide that I was going to, every time there was an opportunity, I would lean into it. And unless there was a, a seriously valid reason not to take the opportunity, I would say yes. And so that I'm very lucky that I've been supported by my family in that principle. But uh, we have. And I mean, we went, my daughter was born in, in Hong Kong. She moved to Germany But before she was two, we spent six months in France before she was three. She was in Australia till she was four. And then she's been here back in Berlin now for, this is her third year at school here. So, you know, she has a completely different upbringing to me. I have no idea what that's going to mean for later. But my husband is also, you know, I just, that you can't do this by yourself. You need to surround yourself with people that, are on the same page with you and, and want the same kind of things that you want. Georgie, what are your plans for this year? If you could share the, those with us. So this year's, I mean, this year's really interesting, right? So we're in the second year of COVID. Charlie, my daughter, has been homeschooled now for three months. And my husband and I are both executives in tech companies And we both work from home in a two-bedroom apartment. <laughs> so I think this year my number one priority is going to be about trying to create some boundaries because that's the thing that I've struggled with the most during COVID is that the reason I love my job is because I, I get to put everything into it. But I didn't realize until COVID happened that I really valued that train trip home because it kind of put a line between my work and, and my family life, and that doesn't exist anymore. 
also my daughter doesn't go to school like and so that boundary doesn't exist anymore either so we're kind of in this melting pot and I think that recognizing that and creating some boundaries that work for me will help and I don't mean like building a brick wall around my office uh, which is in my wardrobe by the way Um, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean kind of putting some distance between things and and you know, going for a walk around the block when you finish work for the day so that you can draw, I can draw a line in between that and my home life and spending time with my family independent of anything to do with work. So that's going to be the first thing. And I think that's going to make me a better executive as well, uh, because I'll know when I'm focusing on one thing versus focusing on another, because it's very, very difficult to multitask in this environment. Georgie, the question that I like to ask all my guests when we wrap up the session is to think uh, of a woman who they define as an author of her own achievements and to share that visibility on the show. So who's that woman you had on your mind? So I have two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, when, when I heard that you were going to ask me this, I thought, oh, my God, dear. is it, you know, I'll, I'll say Sheryl Sandberg or someone. And I, but I don't really think that. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm sure Cheryl is amazing. I think there's there's two women who have shown me different things. And the first one was a, a woman called Jenny McDonald, who is a, a friend of mine. She was the CFO at realestate.com.au. And she has shown me her journey, right? So from functional through to sitting on boards and the you know, we're, we're very similar in that we're both incredibly passionate about what we do. We have ideas and thoughts and we want to change things. And, and she's been amazing in helping me when I felt stuck or when I didn't know what to do, or I was faced, especially with situations where there were other men in either peer groups or as my boss who I was struggling with. And she's been able to give me a viewpoint that I could then take into consideration in making those decisions. And the other one is Norvan Boven, and she is also a friend of mine, and they always come become friends. <laughs> um, and she was the chief people officer at, at N26. And so what I loved about Nor was that I'll I'll be honest, before before meeting Nor, my concept of HR was administrative, right, and, and organizational. And, and what I saw with Nora and the team that she built there was that it is a people team and taking into account the employee and making sure that we listened to people and we understood. And so I actually add that into my experience as a chief product officer is that I now think about teams with that extra piece of information. Thank you for uh, sharing those names with us. And Georgie, thank you again for this conversation. I think you broke down many concepts uh, into a very understandable way. You shared with us your product journey and why one or the other should look into becoming a product manager, potentially, or taking on a product role. Thank you for those insights. And today we're lucky to have a sunny Berlin. We are. (laughs) So let's enjoy the rest of the day. And I wish you a wonderful also start of next week. Thank you very much, Daria. And thanks for inviting me here today. It's awesome what you're doing. I think it's fantastic about really showing like women who are authors of their own achievements. I think it's a great name. And I think we need to look at lots of different authors. And, you know, women are a minority, unfortunately, in our industry. 
but it's not just women, it's also different types of women. So well done. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please don't forget to leave us a review. We're always excited to read them. If you want to interact with us, the guests, or the podcast listeners, then head over to our Instagram page at waa.berlin. And while you're there, make sure to check our webshop. Thank you again for listening, and we're looking forward to being back soon.